this is Paul. Welcome to the Things I Didn't Learn in School podcast. For those of you that are newer to these conversations, the podcasts are one of three things that Still Press puts out. There's also a weekly essay that comes out on Substack. You can sign up for either the free or the paid versions on my website, paulpodolsky.com. And there's also a book, Raising a Thief, and another one, Master Minion. And if you enjoy these conversations, I think that you will enjoy the books and the essays as well. And so with that, thanks for listening, and let's get into our conversation. My guest today to Things I Didn't Learn in School is Jason Bedford, who is a really fascinating expert on China and a friend. I think there's so many interesting questions about China right now, politically, economically, they've just had this massive bankruptcy. I can't think of anybody better to walk us through that than Jason. So Jason, welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Thank you very much for the uh, invitation to join. Sure. So um, just before we jump into you know what's going on there, I think people can tell from listening to you that you're not a native speaker of, of Chinese, but you're a real China expert. So can you share a little bit about who you are, where you grew up, and how you how you came into this, and then we can then we can jump into it. So I've been um, I've been focused on China now for the uh, just shy of twenty years. I went to uh, to Beijing in two thousand three. Originally flying out on a um, a flight for an interview with the Canadian embassy, but I uh, I didn't get the job. Fortunately, flights to China at the time were basically free because it was SARS. I ended up staying. And from there, I worked for the American Chamber of Commerce for a period of time and then really found my calling when I joined KPMG, became qualified as a CPA and spent eight years at KPMG auditing Chinese banks, financial institutions, shadow banks, as well as eventually getting to the consulting side there. From there, I made my way to Hong Kong and UBS, where I spent many years as an equity analyst in the APAC financials area, really focused on China. And then finally, the, the last four years at uh, Bridgewater. Which is where we over we overlapped. And I remember reading your research when you were at UBS and tried to churn through all sorts of China research. And it was the one thing that really uh, resonated with me. And, and I then working with you at Bridgewater that you seemed among your happiest when you were sort of heads down reading these incredibly dense financial statements in Chinese and modeling out what was actually going on, which is why it's always so great to talk with you. So I mean, this, this podcast has listeners all over the world, but many people uh, who listen to it think of China more in a geopolitical context. But let's talk about it you know, to begin with for an economic context. It went through this massive boom and uh, there was a period of time where, much like you had read in the 1990s about how Japan was going to take over the world, there was a lot of that about how China was going to take over the world. But that's all shifted, I would say, in the last two to three years. Big picture, what's going on with the economy there and why the shift? I think 2022 will go down as one of the most extreme actions of economic self-mutilation by China. Mm. I think the, the effects of COVID zero are going to last for a, uh, a long time. And China finds itself in a very difficult spot right now, dealing with something that it's, it's never dealt with. Over my entire career, the mantra has always been, if you offer loans, they will come. There's never been a lack of, of credit demand. Mm. And for the first time, China's dealing with a lack of credit demand, which is very hard for a supply side system like China to deal with that kind of challenge. And a number of things happened over the course of 2022. One, Chinese households became poor. 
That's not something that, that's happened before since the uh, reforms of the 1990s. They've stopped spending. They've went back to an almost bunker mentality, very fixated on more on survival than on, uh, on perpetuation of their material well-being. And from a corporate perspective, everything is slowing. Now, I would argue that there are benefits to a slowing economy from an investor perspective, but the spiral that China's in right now is, is going to be hard to reverse. It's interesting you compared it to Japan. I think what they're doing to an extent is trying to replicate what the Japanese did, which, which is a bit surprising because the Japanese did not succeed. The Japanese approach was also to really fixate on trying to get themselves out of the doldrums through exports. Right. Automobile exports, <laughs> also very similar. The combustion as opposed to electric, but still. Yes, and ironically, China just overtook Japan as the world's largest automobile exporter. So why why did the households? I mean, I, I agree. COVID is a massive shock, and you you were kind enough to write an essay uh, some time ago that I should repost with this, where you went into the real nitty gritty of the the household balance sheets in in China. But just review a little, like why the the shock that they don't bounce back from. I think a few things. One, households are poor. As I, as I noted in, in, that, in, that, in that piece, you know, the MBS data, the National Bureau of Statistics data in China suggests that household in, uh, incomes increased by 21% pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's a distorted number because they changed how that was calculated in 2021. And they included things that were pretty material, like including investment, interest income, rental income, etc., and and side gig income. So you're adding in in incomes that were never counted before. Mm-hmm. So it had a ballooning effect. Uh, the reality is that households are poorer than they were. And that might seem contrary to what deposits say. The deposit inflows in 2022 and 2023 have been stronger than any time I've ever seen. Mm. Almost entirely retail and almost entirely term. And that's important. Term meaning more than a year? Yeah, typically three years. Means it's not a demand deposit. It's not a deposit that you can freely take from it out. Sort of like a certificate of deposit, but longer term. Yes. And what people misunderstand about China is that depositing is wealth management in China. I was very negative on the the idea of the reopening trade because those deposit numbers. Mm-hmm. People are not these are not excess savings that are going to be unleashed in an orgy of consumption once the economy opens. Right. They were they were bunker mentality savings, and money was getting pulled out of investments saved extensively and being put into banks and you know unlike unlike canada where you know people change their bank accounts less often they change their spouses in china it's not uncommon for someone to open up new accounts three four times a year to, to clip a couple basis points of additional um interest income right and, and the reason why depositing is effectively the king in wealth management today is uh there's so few options your capital markets don't offer a diverse range of products. Effectively, you're in China. You can invest into real estate. You can invest into trust products, which are now collapsing. They're effectively off the board. Bank WMPs have deeply underperformed. Wealth management products, you mean? Yes, the bank wealth management products, which are sort of fixed income products, but they're heavily invested into credit as opposed to rates. And there's this bizarre inverse relationship between rates in China and credit. So you're in a, you're in a market that's absolutely starved of, of investment options. If you're in China, you can invest overseas, except through QD, which is a quota that, that a Chinese fund manager will run, which will allow you to invest in foreign assets 
but it's a closed loop. Your money never actually leaves the country. Right. And it probably wouldn't be, well, I guess it would be available to a certain number of people. So, but, but basically there's a, there's a COVID is a massive income shock to these households because they have the zero COVID thing. The households suffer a massive hit to income at a period of time when there's a fair amount of leverage in the system related to real estate. And now what I think you're describing is sort of a self-reinforcing loop where there's not enough income to support the debt and weaker confidence, weaker spending, and it kind of feeds on itself. Is, is, that, is that accurate? Mostly. When, when, you, when you say there's not enough income to support the, the debt, I mean, the household, the household in China is relatively levered up. Yep. How levered? It's, it's, it's reasonably levered. It's, about, it's at about 50, 60% of GDP. Mm-hmm. Household debt, low, low by um, by most Western country standards, certainly by Canadian standards. I, I don't think there's a big repayment threat to that household debt. Yep. But that's really the driver of this lack of credit demand. And and you just do the numbers. Very simple. We started to deleverage the corporate sector in 2015, 2016. Right. But what we effectively did was we just jumped from one bucket to another. Okay, we've got to deleverage corporates. Well, we need to lever something else up. That's a household. Right. 2016, 2017, for nearly seven out of every $10 lent out that, those years mm-hmm. was to the Chinese household. Mm-hmm. That number in 2023, first half 2023, 40 cents. So just pause and think about that gap. And that's what you have to fill now with corporate and government borrowing. Right, to fill the gap. So it's kind of an interesting case that you know, for instance, if you if you flip focus, like if you go, this is why I think having a global perspective is so invaluable. But in the United States, obviously, there was a lot, and Europe to a certain degree, there was a lot of criticism of very aggressive fiscal stimulus during COVID because of the inflation that came afterwards, and and to some degree was related, to some degree it wasn't related. But China's an interesting case study where you had this very, you know, the zero COVID combined with basically, I mean, no, there was some stimulus, but basically fiscal austerity. And it seems to have triggered something now, which is quite difficult to deal with. It, it has. I mean, China's, China's deflationary and the signals that that was going to occur were, were there for quite a while. And you just have to think about the different response of places like the US, Canada, Australia, etc., to COVID versus China. The Chinese government gave nothing to the people. They just gave them more debt. They offered debt. That was what they offered. And that really wasn't focused on people. It was focused on um, on businesses. Like key, key SOEs, et cetera. Actually, ironically, mostly SMEs. Oh, small to medium-sized enterprises, uh-huh. Small micro-sized enterprises. Oh, interesting. You've seen this 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 debt expansion, which I think is is wholly unsustainable. The next shoe to drop quite a ways down the line. I don't think it's an issue at the moment when the system's so liquid. But but banks are under policy mandate to make these loans. There was a loan moratorium put over SME lending, mm-hmm. which may or may not have ended in June 2023. There was no official confirmation that it's ended, which which is also unusual. Usually, when a regulation ends, there's an announcement that it's ended. Right. So. Banks are, uh, from conversations I've had with banks, they're a little bit unclear. It's very gray as to whether they should still continue this um, this lending. But the the household was poor, and then and then you you know aside from the fact that they had this hot this hit, they couldn't work. You've also had very aggressive wage deflation, right? Particularly with the officials, right? 
Yeah. So you have two types. You have government mandated wage deflation, mandatory slashes to anyone in the financial sector, to um, civil servants, public servants. You know, in total, you're looking at, at over 100 million workers that have been affected by, by forceful government mandated wage cuts. Mm-hmm. On top of that is, is market force wage cuts. I was speaking with um, the CEO of a tech company who made the point that it's it's never been better for them. Oh, because the workers are so inexpensive. They're so inexpensive. As he put it himself, we're getting veterans of Alibaba, Tsinghua graduates, people who wouldn't give us a sideway glance before, and we're paying them 40% less. I know you're not a political expert. How much, with you know, without getting into the the detail of, or the hypothesis about you know, what's going on with the leadership there, but how much in this consumer pullback is related to something which is difficult to measure in an open society, but in a closed society, it's even more difficult, which is consumer confidence. Is there a, is there a political tinge, do you think, to the weaker confidence? Yes. And I think that I wouldn't just say that's, that's consumer confidence. I also think that that's corporate confidence. There was a way we, we do things in, uh, in China. Your classical approach when you have a new regulation, something drastic. I'll give the example of, of, of Circular 127. It's back in 2016, I read this regulation. I thought to myself, this, they can't do this. This will, this will push so many banks into, um, into default. Effectively, it was an immediate retroactive reclassification of bad debts held in investment assets that were about to suddenly be recognized through one document. Mm-hmm. But the, the way that we would deal with things is, one, you take that regulation, you send it to your think tanks. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, China has more think tanks per capita than any country in the world. <laughs> the think tanks will respond back to what they think. And then that draft legislation is shared with the banks. And they're typically given a consultative, consultative period of 30 to 60 days uh-huh. um, in which to comment on it. The banks gave their thoughts on it. Circular 127 never came out. It was never issued into regulation. Mm-hmm. The, the breaking point for me was what happened with the education companies. That was that, that, that aha moment. Something is really different. Right. There was no consultation, no think tanks. Unlike document 127, which was a, a 48-page document, this was a, a two-page document that transformed for-profit education institutions into nonprofits and wiped out about $100 billion of, um, of market cap. I might be off on the market cap number. Right. A lot. That was a big change in how we do things. So I think the uncertainty that that and you know, following episodes has just injected a great deal of uncertainty. Right. People don't know what's next. Companies don't know what's next. And it's created, it's created stasis among many major players in the economy. And I, I think now the government is angling for a return to more regulatory certainty. We haven't seen a return to anything like what happened with the education companies or the tech companies, but people are always wondering, is that around the corner? So I want to turn to the government policy in, in, in a moment, The because uh, that, that's a really important thing. And there's been a lot of focus on that. And my understanding is you're, 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 you see some signs there for optimism, but let's let's just move from the economy to the asset markets. And of course, they're, they're separate things. So the equity market is not, is not the economy. There's been a lot of enthusiasm, I would say, from a bunch of the Wall Street banks saying, you know, you have to have 
China's part of your portfolio and a number of the, you know, it's obviously much heavier weighting in the indexes. But as an investment, you know, Chinese stocks have been terrible. I'm looking at my my screen now. And if you look at the, you know, the most common index, the price is unchanged since 2007. So this is, you know, whatever, 17-year bear market. And then if you look at some of the, the companies that people used to really be excited about, something like Alibaba, which is, you know, not exactly, but it's sort of like they are Amazon. It's trading at a PE of 9.6, and Amazon is trading for a PE of 74.5. So one one interesting question is shorter term, but also longer term, why has the Chinese equity market been such a terrible investment? On, on a long-term basis, the, the it's really because of perpetual share dilution and an agency problem. Right. Share dilution, in other words, just issuing lots of shares. Shares are supply-demand, so if the supply goes up, the price goes down. Correct. And these companies were, were just constantly in CapEx mode. Mm-hmm. China was the fastest-growing economy in the world. And shareholder protections are, are just just not great. You don't see the kind of activist activist investors that, that like, you know, what folks like Elliot, et cetera, are doing in Japan, Korea. No one's trying that in China. Right. And you've had this agency problem where the only person that really mattered was the um, was the government. Right. And that was true for both private and state sector companies and, and just very powerful founder personalities, et cetera. I do think that's actually changing and changing in a reasonably positive way. You know, one of the things that was missed in common prosperity was the instruction to to corporates to give far more money back to investors, mm-hmm. expand employee stock option plans. Mm-hmm. They've recently pretty sharply relaxed restrictions around buybacks. Mm-hmm. One one key change came from SASAC. Who's who's SASAC? The entity that controls SOEs across China. They protect the value of state sector assets. Right, 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 right. The state-owned entities, yep. Uh, where they've changed the, the KPIs mm-hmm. for, for SOEs mm-hmm. to include giving money back to, to investors. So the, the, the key performance indexes include shareholder return now in a way they didn't before. Sorry, sorry key, performer, uh, uh, key performance indicators. Yeah, indicators, sorry. So, so this this is a that's actually a big deal. KPIs matter a lot more in China than most countries. Right. I remember back in my my KPMG days doing a advisory project for the biggest shareholder in the big four banks in China, and the banks were rightly complaining that their only KPI was net profit, which is a terrible way to assess the performance of a bank. And we came up with with a number of solutions to create a better, like effectively, here are the KPIs to create a very healthy bank. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the client complains that these are too many. It's very difficult to change KPIs. Mm-hmm. And, and they eventually settled on a few. But the KPIs that these companies are set by, they're followed very, very religiously. Right. And it's a very big deal when you change it. You're, you're, you're talking about changing how thousands of companies operate. Right. So they've this recent rules to incur, encourage uh, more shareholder-friendly culture. What else there are you seeing besides that the government is aware that this is a significant problem, this this weakness in growth, and is implementing? They have implemented various measures to ease fiscal or monetary policy, but it's been tiny. 
and the problem seems to be significant. Yeah, so there's not there's not been I think what the market keeps expecting, hoping for is stimulus. Mm-hmm. They want to see a ton of stimulus, and I mean there is some stimulus. I thought it was quite a big deal that we're we're going through another round of shanty town redevelopment, which involves handing money to households, tearing down their house, rebuilding, and then they use that money to purchase a new a new apartment. Mm-hmm. That money is pretty fast and furious, and it is a form of, of a, a pre-material stimulation. But certainly everything that the market's expected and the government's done, it's constantly fallen short. Mm-hmm. The market was also really surprised by the failure of China to cut the benchmark rates recently, which was a, a pretty deeply held market expectation. Right. I, w- I would say there's you know, unlike in the U.S. where you have the magical Fed funds rates, you one, you have many rates in China. Two, the rates don't have a direct follow through to what's actually happening in rates. Right. Because it sort of goes through the big state owned banks, which need to sort of implement the policy in the ways they do. Well, well irrespective of, of what the benchmark is, the benchmark didn't didn't tell rates to d- didn't tell banks to cut SME loan rates. From nearly nine percent down to four point two percent, right? In the space of in the space of uh, three years, mm-hmm. there's nothing anywhere close to that dramatic. So a lot of the rate moves happen irrespective of whatever the LPR, the DR 7 the benchmark rate is. So I, I think there is that that constant misunderstanding about how China operates, which leads to a conclusion that they're doing less than what they they actually are. Right. And remind me in the LPRs, something prime rate. What is it? The, the Lo- loan prime rate. Loan prime rate, right. And so wouldn't like the way Japan finally got out of this and it took forever for policy to change and multiple changes in leadership is basically to print and to print a lot of money, have the Bank of Japan then buy that money. So there's a huge amount of government debt in, in Japan, but a lot of it's owned by the government, and allow the yen to weaken. And it looked like they were allowing the renminbi to weaken some, but that stopped now. And it seems to be a major, like, if they have the Japan disease, applying the Japan solution, which is now what seems to be creating many things, change in shareholder culture, et cetera, but a change in fiscal and monetary policy really does seem to have created a bottom in the in the Japanese stock market, and as many people are really excited about Japanese assets for the first time in a long time, those types of solutions seem hard to fathom at any proximate time in China. Do you agree with that? Yes, and I think the big difference between Japan and China is that Japan never really sought to be the world leading power. China does have that aspiration. And to achieve that aspiration, they want a globalized currency. Back in my, my uh, KPMG days, I was on the Renminbi Internationalization Committee in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the crowning achievement during that time was when the RMB overtook the New Zealand dollar right. in terms of global transaction activity. Right. And then it just sort of sat there and festered until very recently. And right now, you're actually seeing real RMB internationalization Mostly not because of what China's done, but because of what the U.S. has done with, with Russia. Right. Them trying to do more transactions in renminbi for their energy, et cetera. But that's still tiny as a percentage of the overall global currency transactions, right? 
growing very rapidly. And, and if you look at global financing out of, out of China, uh, sorry, global purchase of Chinese goods, yep. a huge amount of them are now in, in RMB. Now, historically, those were backed by US dollar swaps. So they weren't really RMB transactions, like you transact in RMB, and then you immediately have the right to convert that to US dollars with China as your counterparty. But recently, you're now seeing more and more countries hold RMB in their in their central banks. I don't think it was a coincidence that on March 24th, Dilma Rousseff, the ex-president of Brazil, was made um, the head of the New Development Bank, uh-huh. one of China, one of two new development banks created by um, China. Uh, and then two weeks later, Brazil announces that it's uh, it's going to sell its goods to China in RMB. Right. Saudi Arabia has since followed suit. Argentina has followed suit. But of those, the only one that really makes sense is Argentina. They have a, a huge demand for RMB because they've got to pay back a whole bunch of RMB debt. For Saudi Arabia, they don't they don't buy anything from China. Brazil doesn't buy much from China. They've got huge trade surpluses with China. I mean, there are very few countries in the uh, in the world that, that for do soybeans it. and iron ore mostly, right? Correct, commodities and Saudi Arabia oil. And Saudi Arabia doesn't buys very little from China. I mean, they they primarily buy French handbags. European food right. and, uh, and Western weapons. I mean, those are the, the key exports into Saudi Arabia. What do they really buy from China? Now, China is using some of that money in the creation of a new city in Saudi Arabia called Nia. Oh, that's interesting. Talk about the overall debt situation there, the real estate debt, Evergrande. I mean, this is something that you probably know better than anyone in the world. What's, what's your assessment of, of how things are now, where they're going? Let me, let me just make one last question on the, the internationalization. Okay. Uh, one last statement, sorry. China's sensitive now in a way that it wasn't before to weakening the RMB because suddenly people are doing what it finally wanted, which is accepting RMB, even though China's a closed capital account system. Which, which then markedly, uh, it's, that's a, I'm glad you interrupted, I'm glad you brought back that point, which then markedly impl- uh, limits the amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus they can do. Correct. If that's, if that's their measure of, and you know, that's what the, huge foreign exchange reserves and everything, if that's what their measure of national pride is, then that's a huge constraint on the ability to print. Correct. Especially if your goal is to be to maintain that that manufacturing production dominance in the world. And I and I do think that is a lot of what China's doing. We you know Chinese goods for Chinese people, Chinese goods for global markets. Now China has a huge advantage over everyone in Asia, perhaps uh, excluding perhaps Vietnam. And that it is the only deflationary economy. Right. Which is why the bonds, the government bonds have been such great investments. Yes. I mean, if you're particularly if you're inside China and you weren't exposed to the currency. So uh, let's turn to the, the corporate debt situation. So Evergrande is this gigantic developer declared bankrupt, I guess, last week or this week in Hong Kong. So you've obviously looked at these companies in an enormous amount of detail. What's, what's the big picture and what are some of the interesting micro stories? You know, going back to what I said before on on regulation, this the three red lines, which was implemented in 2020 and, and was meant to really slowly delever the real estate developers, um, stop the overheating property market. It should have been it should have went through a consultative period, all those things. Yep. Because it was it was devastating. And I think the government was wholly caught off guard by how incredibly complex these entities were, how many subsidiaries they had. Right. When you, when you map out these things, they they, uh, they look like a Korean chable. I and mean, they're, they're just sweeping organizations. 
and, and we've ended up in this situation because of a, of a huge developer debt problem. Chinese bankruptcy law, the process has actually worked reasonably well. There were very good reforms in 2016 to the legal system. I think it's going to be fascinating watching how these bankruptcies play out both off and onshore. Um, so I'm not sure if I followed the question exactly. What, what was the... Uh, are you asking how these things have been resolved? Well, basically, is this is there? You're talking about a depressed consumer, and their overall levels of debt not that high, but the corporate debt has been high. So now they've, you know, in in a slowing deflationary economy, this is obviously death for those people who have weakening cash flows and high fixed obligations of debt. So Evergrande is a notable bankruptcy. Do you think that they're actually going to be allowed to fail? How many more other companies like that are there? How big of a bad debt? Workout problem is China facing. So, in overall bad debt, you know, it's important to to acknowledge that China cleaned up a ton of bad debt from 2016 to 2022, but about 13 percent of GDP, mm-hmm. which puts it on par with the likes of the U.S. and Japan, you know, during the GFC during the the, the 1990s. You're right. In terms of scale of cleanup for the developers, I mean, they're they're stuck with it with a huge cash flow problem. Right. So first they had too much debt. And then they were told they couldn't borrow more, so then they couldn't continue to build, and their debt loads were unsustainable. They couldn't afford to repay these things. So then local government started freezing the escrow accounts, which were pre-development funds for for developments that had started but were not yet completed. Yep. Which then led to the issue of unfinished properties, yep. which is now sweeping the country and led to a mortgage protest where people stopped paying their mortgages for a period of time. Right. So it was just, it was a vicious, a vicious cycle. And where we stand today to really, to get the developers back on sound footing, you not only have to get in the debt that they needed when this kicked off years ago, right? but you also have to figure out, you also have to give them the cash flows that their businesses needed over the past three, four years. It's, it's, it's too much money. So I don't see how many of the, the especially the, the, the private sector developers, are going to have a pulse in two to three years' time. Right. And in scale, this you described the last cleanup as sort of 13% of GDP of debt. How big a problem do you think this one is? From a banking sector perspective, it's only about, real estate development loans are only about 6.7% of total lending. The sector that's really being caught flat-footed, and you're, you're seeing it in the headlines now, is the trust sector. They are disproportionately exposed to developers. And as a result, you're seeing trust company after trust company implode. Mm-hmm. Now, theoretically, trust companies are wealth managers. Right. When a, when a wealth manager has a bad year, they don't typically declare bankruptcy. Right. The difference with trust companies versus other wealth managers is they co-invest into their own products, typically taking the subprime trench. Oh, God. Which is why when you break down trust sector revenues... On average, 25 to 32% of total revenues come from interest and investment income, not fee and commission income. Well, fee and commission is, is, a, is a large spit followed by investment and interest income. So in terms of scale, though, if you were to sort of, okay, so it's more with the trust companies, more with the real estates, not necessarily with the banks. But if you were looking at this as scale, how much bad debt there is as a percentage of GDP, what sort of numbers do you come up with? I, I don't have a strong view on that. It's, it's really difficult to figure out because they're, they're multifaceted borrowers. Yep. They've got a huge amount of bonds outstanding, equity financing, borrowing from leasing companies, borrowing from trust companies, entrusted loans bank borrowing, I, uh, I tried to really figure it out. 
it's it's tricky. Even when you look at the balance sheets of the of the developers, it's not entirely clear because the ubiquitous other category, huge amounts of acceptances. So effectively borrowing from your own suppliers and distributors. Uh, sorry, not, not acceptances, uh, uh, receivables. Receivables, uh-huh. Got it. Yeah, sorry, scratch that. I don't, I don't really have a good answer. Got it. It's, I, I get it. It's too complicated, too many moving pieces. But the fact that you, who I would trust more than anybody to have a good answer, doesn't have a good answer, means that it's probably very, very difficult to tell, which means it's difficult to set policy. Last question for me. So the, 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 this sort of is more geopolitics, less than politics. But of course, people outside China are very uh, concerned about the prospect of China uh, forcibly uh, unifying with Taiwan. Um, hearing the economic picture you paint, one might argue that that's less likely. However, the situation of Russia in terms of its economic dynamism, not necessarily a real estate debt problem, but was not spectacular when they went into Ukraine. So again, you're not a geopolitical expert. You're not a military guy. But from your standpoint of somebody who really understands the China, the financial machine there, how do you think that this economic reality impacts if you had to guess, the willingness to do something like forcibly integrate Taiwan. It's, it's like asking me um, what happens if the U.S. defaults on their debt obligations to the rest of the world. Bad things, I'll tell you right away. <laughs> so you, you, look at, you look at Russia, you look at China. What does it mean to san- sanction Spurbank? It doesn't mean a whole lot. What does it mean to sanction ICBC? The amount of counterparty relationships that would need to unwind almost overnight, mm-hmm. it would it would devastate the the global the, the entire global banking market. It's it's just it, and so when you ask that question, it's just so hard for me to conceive of, of even coming remotely close to the same measures that were implemented against Russia and and doing that against China, a country that's so deeply integrated with the um, with the with the global financial system economy. Trade, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I, I don't think a a conflict with Taiwan is likely, and I think the election results were actually very good from China's perspective. You have a, a divided government, but again, I'm, I'm I'm conscious I'm getting a little bit out of my wheelhouse. Right, but a DPP sort of more more left presidency and more right representation. That's really useful. Good. This is super helpful, Jason. I don't know if it's fun for you, but I, I just always love hearing hearing your thoughts about this. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack on paulpodolsky.com and become a paid subscriber. That helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much.